Hello, hello. My name is Barnaby Pickering, and welcome to this podcast from MedTech Insight. The past year has been a mixed one for digital therapeutics. Good news about reimbursement and increasing acceptance from doctors, pharma and patients has been set against bad news like the bankruptcy of pair therapeutics and the almost complete cessation of investment. The uncertainty surrounding the very concept of digital therapeutics has left many, including myself, wondering when and how these innovative technologies will truly make their impacts felt. Thankfully, about two weeks ago, I had the opportunity to speak to three experts in the field. Andy Molnar, CEO of the Digital Therapeutics Alliance, Joel Morse, CEO and co-founder of Curavit, a CRO that is pushing the digital envelope, and Owen McCarthy, CEO and co-founder of Medrhythms, which has developed a dual software device product to help patients learn to walk again following neurological injury. We had a roughly 30-minute long discussion during which I asked the trio about the challenges facing the digital therapeutics industry and where they believe it is headed. I hope you enjoy. Nice to meet you, Barney. Thanks for sending this up, Lisa. Joel Morse, CEO, co-founder of Curavit Clinical Research. We are a CRO uh, focused on decentralized or uh, virtual clinical trials and adding to our solution, especially around health economic and outcomes research. Nice to meet you. and look forward to the conversation. Owen McCarthy here. I'm the co-founder and president of MedRhythms. We build medical devices that help people improve their walking following a range of neurologic injury diseases. Our first product, the Intandem, is in market now and available uh, for prescription uh, for people with chronic stroke walking deficits. I also chair the board of directors of the Digital Therapeutics Alliance, which is a good uh, entree to let Andy introduce himself here. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. Uh, Andy Molnar. I'm the CEO of the Digital Therapeutics Alliance. I report into Owen, the chairman of my board. Um, <laughs> the Digital Therapeutics Alliance, the trade organization representing software as a medical device and software in a medical device, uh, companies that have a therapeutic outcome. Um, we focus on everything from lobbying and government affairs to reimbursement, clinical evidence and health economic evidence and regulatory internationally. Fantastic. Fantastic. I guess, um, the big issues that I want to discuss with you three today are the challenges facing digital therapeutics. It's obviously been a fairly bumpy year, but there have been glimmers of hope. On one hand, you've got, you know, Achilles, pair therapeutics, companies that seem to have a cool product, but clearly commercially couldn't execute. But then you've got on the other side, you know, AstraZeneca partnering with Huma, that, that, that proves that Big Pharma is interested in these sorts of digital products. Perhaps Andy, how's the year been for digital therapeutics then? Just holistically <laughs> yeah it's i i keep saying this but it's it's been one of the hardest years and one of the best years at the same time um it started out dipping then we saw pair go out of go bankrupt which was you know really unfortunate after all the work that they had done to drive this industry forward but we also we see a lot of momentum a lot of momentum on capitol hill with the understanding of of the changes that can occur in healthcare through innovation and we've seen a lot of people now coming up with ways, ulterior ways to bring products to market. Really exciting to see Applied VR get their own HixPix code. Uh, I know they went the durable medical equipment pathway, but we're looking at that and we're looking at updates to remote therapeutic monitoring. 
and really focusing on payers reimbursement models and seeing a variety of ways to cover products that are sort of outside of your normal claims processing bucket. So as we look to streamline everything in the future, and you think about how that compares to pharma and medical device, you know, it's not going to be one pathway. It's going to be quite a few depending on the product and your clinical data. And so I see us going to 2024 with uh, in a really positive light with really strong momentum. Yeah, it's interesting just to jump in here, right? Like, as I look at the digital therapeutics industry, I think two like broader age old sayings, I think apply, which are one of them is most successful companies are not often it's about the idea. It's about timing, right? If you look at a lot of data out there about companies that started at a certain time or that took off, you think about MySpace versus Facebook or other things like that, right? Like ideas can be really good and can change the world. It's just when they time and like when they come about and like, are, is the market ready for them? Right. And I think that's a challenge with some of the first people that came through. And and then the second thing that I think about is as humans, like we often like over imagine what can change in one year and under imagine what can change in five years. And I think if you look at digital therapeutics where we're treating new things, we're, we're um, meeting unmet needs, we're seeing great clinical results and it's scalable ways to reach people in their homes without, you know, with the clinician shortages. Those are going to be a big impact delivered by the industry in the future. But like with those two lenses, right, it's just like the when uh, question that that uh, everyone, you know, should be asking. I guess digging in on that, the when, um, it seems that there are two kind of things that determine when a product can enter the market. First is when there is enough clinical evidence to justify its use. Um, we've seen that with uh, insulin pumps. We've known for a few years now that they work, but it took electronic until I think mid this year, June, July. That's how long it took them to secure reimbursement. So you've got the reimbursement side of things. And then, yeah, you've got the clinical evidence. Perhaps, Joel, you could weigh in on the the seeming lack of clinical evidence for digital therapeutics at the moment. Well, you know, I don't have a a view of the entire landscape uh, like Andy does, but I would say that I wouldn't classify or define digital therapeutics of a lack of digital evidence. I think that there, every single digital therapeutic company that seems to be in, in Andy's organization and that we deal with, their first priority seems to be all around the clinical evidence. And, and I think that some, that has actually been an issue because I think mentally these companies have wanted to get across the finish line on digital on uh, clinical evidence and thinking that that's the finish line. And actually that's just the beginning because now you need to get the market access, et cetera. And I think what I've seen in the last year and a half, why I'm excited about the industry and on momentum is I've seen a shift in people like Owen and people like Andy, that they understand that they've got a broader mandate and that mandate is clinical evidence. And, And again, I really have seen a tremendous amount of focus on clinical evidence in this community. But now it's expanded to also market access and really trying to solve those problems. So I think it's a maturation of the digital therapeutics industry going from, hey, we just need to show FDA, ourselves, medical community that there's efficacy here and they're showing it and we're running a lot of trials. But now they're like, hey, wait a minute. Now we need to get the actual uh, consumers, um, uh, physicians, the industry to accept it. So that that's what I'm seeing. And that's what excites me, actually. 
Yeah, I would actually add that, you know, I think it's a uh, it's misleading to see some of the medical policies that are out there for blanket digital therapeutics, um, because a lot of them say investigational only. And that's really a way for the payers to control not paying for these products because they still don't know how to handle them. So it's really more of a workflow issue. And they're calling them investigational to to move to just say, okay, we can deny them at first, which is really what payers do for a lot of drugs, right? I, I think CVS still NDC blocks every new drug until they review it and that type of thing. And so it looks like the data may potentially not be, be good enough for payers, but that's not the reason they're doing that. It's because of their lack of understanding of workflow. And we work a lot with NCPDP as well, another trade organization um, that handles ePrescribe. And we, we can work through the existing pathways. The problem is pharmacies like Walgreens and CVS aren't at a point where they know how to dispense these products. So even though we can fit into current workflow, there, there's still this outstanding issue of how do you train you know, 100,000 pharmacists to dispense digital therapeutic, and we're not there yet. And so I, I, I believe there's this huge focus on clinical data, but really a lot of HEOR and real-world evidence because the controlled, the randomized controlled trials or pivotal trials that people are doing are in many cases, just as rigorous as you would do for a medical device. And in many cases, more rigorous. Even if you think about like through the lens of medical devices, you know, digital, they get approved that way through the FDA. Many medical devices, like as Joel was saying, upon getting in the market is the starting point. And then you need to continue to build your case for coverage with real world data, health economics data, additional RCTs. I mean, it's it's pretty standard, right? Like I think early on in the industry though, and, and maybe this is the case in some instances, but um, companies had people that came from a pharmaceutical background that were that were leading them, which which has a lot of virtues, but but one paradigm that's different for many pharmaceuticals is like to get through phase two and phase three, they've already ran two like large RCTs. And um, there's a little less scrutiny because the FDA has a different paradigm for approving drugs when they do get through to the uh, insurers. And so the, it's just a different pathway. And I think as we've sort of looked at it and said, well, we're medical devices often used in home, then um, it's become clearer how to make the case to get coverage. And now then you might say, well, why aren't you, why don't you have wide scale co well, coverage for a bunch of these products? Well, some of them are getting there and it takes time, right? Like the industry is new. And while it might be faster to get through the FDA to do, you know, large health economic studies with one year uh, cost uh, curves on the other side, you're going to need to run the study and then add a year to get the data. And so it just takes time to get the data to make the case. And so we're in that moment for many, many of us. I guess that kind of takes me back to pair therapeutics. They had Medicaid coverage. I believe that they wrote 14,000 prescriptions by midway 2022. Fulfillment wasn't fantastic. It hovered around the 50% mark, but it hovers around that mark for lots of drugs for treatment of drug addiction. Why didn't they succeed then, do you think? Right. This is an opinion, according to me, not the official opinion of the DTA, just for a disclaimer out there, right? But to blaze a trail in the new market, you know, they raised $500, $600 million and they built a cost structure that was a hundred million a year to do that. And uh, while you like cite these numbers of success, you take that, multiply that by revenue, there's still a large gap there, right? Like 
And they might have had to do that to like start to like knock down new things, right? Like when they went to all these insurers you talked about, they would be like, they wouldn't start from like, can you cover us? They would start with a conversation of, I have no idea what to do with you. Like, are you like, do you slot it here? Do we code you this way? Are you CPT code, a pharmacy benefit? And that was months of work, right? And like, you need to do a lot of education. Um, and then once you got the contracts, now um, you need to look at like patient population, right? Like, you know, it's a really, they, they picked a, a high unmet need in America and a really difficult one to reach at the same time. And so that was, that was a challenge. And so I'm very grateful for what they've done because they've like laid a bunch of tracks that a bunch of us either a won't go down or B can go down. And so it's like not good for them, but great for the industry that they're able to get that far. Well, I'll reiterate what Owen said. They bit off a lot. So I I think that, you know, you get a a good um, investment and that's great, but they didn't try to do one thing. I think they tried to do 10 things. And um, that's just really hard when you probably haven't thought through the assets and resources required to get it market acceptance. And so they were trying to get, I, I think it's nine to 12 indications through, you know, through the goal line, if you will, with the FDA. And that, I, I think that that strategy was more expensive than they realized. So I, I think the, the uh, failure or the bankruptcy, if you will, is less of an indication of the digital therapeutic industry and more of an indication of a corporate strategy that just built up a cost structure that was not sustainable. Yeah, and I, I just want to add uh, to piggyback off of what Owen said. Um, they put they invested tens of millions of dollars in the into the industry as a whole, um, they left, they did leave a gap when they went under from funding for things like government affairs work, um, focusing on legislation and policy, working at state lobbying. I don't, you know, they were one of a few companies out there that was really trying to get Medicaid states to cover and was showing success. And they weren't, I mean, of course they were doing it for themselves, but it only functioned because they were saying this is something that can work for an entire new form of medicine. And so with that, you know, I have to hand it to them for what they, the pathways that they paved and that they were bringing along other companies with them. Because without that investment, you know, we may still be six months to a year behind where we're at now. Related, if you talk to them right now, a number of them, one of the things they wish they would have done would be more targeted commercially and focus on getting coverage and coverage density before they scale that cost infrastructure, right? A lot yeah. of the things that you're hearing now from everyone else in the industry that says like, what what are our takeaways from, you know, how to, how to build and scale commercial in this space? I guess the big question is, is whether or not they've been a net positive. Sure, they've laid some tracks, but they have damaged the reputation of digital therapeutics. It's undeniable that they can work. But now that investors have lost a significant chunk of money investing in them, yeah. are they going to invest in them in the future? Well, I mean, it's a good question, Barnaby. In this moment, investors aren't investing in a lot of things. So it's hard to tell. Sure. You pull generative AI out of funding dollars. That's a, a major drop that no one's really even talking about right now. So uh, that's a TBD 
certainly is conversations that come up in some of our fundraising conversations. However, people are getting smarter too about, you know, if you do have a pathway, you know, wear durable medical equipment. There's sufficiently, you're, you're a different type of patient, right? Stroke has no solutions for chronic stroke. Like, like there's, there's some nuances. Investors are more educated and it is a conversation that we have, but I don't see it's worse than other industries unless you add AI to something right now. Just kind of digging in on that, you you just talk about your your product, which you use to treat people with stroke. Do you ever think it would be better if it was bolstered by a device, something physical that a patient could interact with? Well, it's funny you say that because just as a background on the product, Barnaby, um, we do have a two foot one sensors, handheld device and headset that gets shipped to someone's house. That That is a device that is physical in nature. It's and it uses the the software is where the brains are the clinical thinking algorithm that takes the data in from the sensors changes the music in real time delivers the intervention and lets them do their on their own so the answer is yes to your question do you think that that's key though I thought it was a kind of use at home software well it is a use at home uh, hardware software combo um, okay. and for us we do believe that's key particularly given. Um, you, you got to really start with like the payer mix and the patient population, right? And our payer mix being a large Medicare, Medicare Advantage population. Um, and then looking at like different pathways to reimbursement. Um, I, you know, there that is one of the only options right now for a Medicare, Medicare Advantage is through uh, durable medical equipment pathway. And so, yes, we I think that's key. Now, um, in other instances, I think there's other options options. And once Andy pushes through the Prescription Digital Therapeutics Act, there'll be so many, so many additional uh, levers there. But but yeah, I think it's key for us. But I think it's case by case. Some others have other cases to be made to be included in either CPT codes or employer formularies or other things like that. Yeah, I, I the strictly software products, um, you know, the, the pathways that exist, there are a lot of per member per month, per employee per month type contracts. And so you you see a lot of success in the employer space. You know that's a different kind of slog um, to get all the employers in the U.S. on on board. Um, but you know, if it comes down to companies are sending tablets and getting them back um, to as we start to see this market change, and that's what it takes for people to get used to using a digital therapeutic and for payers to get used to paying for it. I think it's only a positive, you know, the way that Owen's company is looking at his product versus a company like Pear that was software only. It, it they are two different animals, but it, we're we're striving for innovation in the healthcare space, and it's not going to come without leaping over hurdles that are sometimes seem a little bit too high to jump over. Does the distinction of prescription status matter? It seems just like another barrier to your end patients. It's another thing that a doctor's got to do. I and mean, you were talking about training hundreds of thousands of pharmaceutical staff earlier. You've got to then persuade doctors that it's worth prescribing. This is a cop-out, but it, I think it depends, right? I mean, and if you think about people that are living with a stroke that are, you know, especially specialty conditioned, largely Medicare, Medicare Advantage, if we want to reach them and not have them have to pay for it out of pocket so we can only reach the higher socioeconomic ones. We need insurance coverage, right? Like in a path to that. And if we want that, most, if not all of the policies for durable medical equipment require them to be ordered or prescribed, right? So there's your answer in that case. 
I think in the other cases where maybe there are large population health conditions and they're, um, you know, with employers, maybe it doesn't make sense for a prescription, right? Like, you know, like the big healths of the world, et cetera, that are doing really great stuff and don't require it. And I think it just takes like a, like you got to like dive into the indication and all the things that are happening there before you say like, is prescription good? Is prescription bad? If, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think, you know, there are dozens of substance use disorder products out there. Um, a few of which have clinical validation behind them that are not prescription and a few that are not regulated at all. So I can't really speak to speak to them, but um, you know, I, to Owen's point, it really depends on the um, therapeutic category for to make that decision as to whether or not it's and, and the safety and efficacy and what payers are interested in. You know, I think, you know, something like insomnia, you're you are used to a primary care provider referring you to a specialist. So that's not as far of a leap as you know, maybe your clinician in substance use disorder doesn't even have prescribing power, you know, so I, n- not to call out pair too much, but since they're no longer around, it's probably the easiest to, dis- to discuss in hindsight. It's all about how they apply to research situations. That's what I think is the kind of core issue with DTX. It's clear that if they can provide data that's valuable for a clinical trial, uh, whether that's pre or post market for a drug, there's value. Um, But as a standalone therapy, that's where you've really got the issues of prescription or non-prescription. Perhaps, Joel, you could talk about them being used as a research tool. I mean, would you even call them digital therapeutics at that point, or would you just call them a digital research tool? If I understand your question correctly, I think that what we're seeing is a lot more um, research around the combination of the digital therapeutic and maybe a traditional pharmaceutical. And so at least at at our stage and our stage is, you know, we're working on the uh, generation of evidence. We're not really at the stage where we're helping, you know, get market acceptance. I mean, other than with with some of the health economics uh, information. So I think that you're starting to see a lot more of that. You're starting to see a lot more, I think, creativity um, by both pharmaceutical and what you might describe as big pharma and the digital therapeutics companies coming together with a joint need. And that need is um, from a pharmaceutical standpoint, extending their product and from a digital therapeutic, maybe um, getting financing, getting more support in very expensive clinical research and then um, leveraging the um, you know, market access that a lot of these uh, pharmaceutical companies have. I guess my only sort of, you know, not retort to that, but uh, issue with that is that it does blur the line between a piece of software and a digital therapeutic. What is the actual therapeutic there? Is it the drug or is it the software that monitors the patient's daily response to the drug? I think these apps have huge clinical utility if you've got someone with a chronic disease you know their condition is varying on the day um but is it actually delivering a therapeutic impact or is it allowing clinicians to well make decisions that deliver a therapeutic impact well it's it's a question a good question barnaby i think as we think about i mean in some cases 
it, yes, right? It does deliver a therapeutic impact. We're measuring the same outcomes as drugs would as on a standalone basis. And then if you walk to the point where you take a therapeutic, digital therapeutic that's making a difference and combo it with a drug in a trial, well, actually, like we've gotten pushback a lot from pharma saying like, like they initially come in and say, oh, we like your gate data because we measure gate data. That's really interested in all these diseases. And then like two conversations in, if they're thinking about putting in a trial, they say, wait, but how do I know what outcome my drug's getting, right? Like if you're actually intervening also. So we actually usually don't, those conversations don't proceed at that point. Mm -hmm. and, and then though, I, you know, and I'm a little outside, I haven't dove into the the new rule from FDA, but I saw a LinkedIn post recently that I would recommend us reading up on from David Klein from Click that as of a couple of weeks ago, there's now an ability to put the software um, that was used in the label of the drug, which is gonna create some really interesting, if I understand it right, combination opportunities um, for them together, right? So I think that could help answer your question and like accelerate things. Um, and then in some cases, Pharma is looking at them as standalone assets to complement right their their drug um, portfolios. So uh, I think that's the range of things that are happening out there in the pharma world. Yeah, and no, I I think we see, we actually see you know the the clinical data and health economic data is oftentimes based on the therapeutic uh, um, uh, impact of the product. When you look at comp companies like MetaSafe have data out there as well on um, medication adherence and they've demonstrated like improvement in blood pressure and things like that where we still haven't actually or i haven't personally seen a lot of data is in the, the therapeutic monitoring piece that you were talking about and i remember I, I was on a panel a few months ago and somebody was saying i don't doubt that this that a doctor monitoring a patient you know um, over the three months that they don't see them, if they look once a month at a, at a certain reading or um, biomarker or, you know, um, mental health uh, test or something like that, that it wouldn't be helpful. But there's no, there's really still not a lot of data that says if I'm a doctor and I look every day at what my patient is doing, that that helps the end game. Like, am I improving your blood pressure by looking at your readings every day? I mean, it makes sense that you would. But the data actually doesn't support that as well as it supports the therapeutic interventions. I just find that quite surprising because it seems that everywhere else in the kind of healthcare universe, it's a focus on personalized care. It's focused on this, you know, the episodic nature of healthcare and trying to turn it into a, you know, continuous form of healthcare. And it seems that digital therapeutics would be absolutely perfect for that. It's something that you can have at home that you use when you want to deliver the therapy that you want. You don't have hospitals, you don't have doctors prodding you. It's literally perfect if you pull it off. But there isn't the data to actually prove that they have this impact. I guess, what, what, why haven't companies been focusing on this? Because the focus has been on the therapeutic intervention, right? Providers get can choose how the time that they spend with their patient. That would be like doing a study that says, if I go see my doctor every morning, is that better than if I go see my doctor once a year? You know, it's kind of, it's kind of out of the norm for clinical trials, but I think it's something that as we see remote monitoring um, become stronger or more widely used, I should say, that eventually we, we will see that. But, you know, the focus of our companies is putting a product together that meets a clinical endpoint the same way of a as a drug. Well, the interesting thing, right? I mean, like, 
obviously like remote mon- there's companies that do like remote monitoring full time right like the Philips and others of the world and heart disease um and there's cert- like though right like if you were to look at them it really only happens in the big six right the large population health diseases um be- because the way the economics are set up, it's hard to make the case for some of the specialty diseases and make and get investment for that. You know, that's that's a theory according to me, but like, you know, that's that's how I think about it. And then on the digital therapeutic side, you will see that. But there's like a where do you like we're money in the companies are small and they're they're looking at where they invest their time and energy. And in, in our case, I would love to do all those things. But like, we don't want to change. We're already trying to figure out how to fit in the workflow. And if you're trying to fit in and change it all at the same time, then that's a hard thing to solve, right? So like fit in, get some scale, and then do that to follow is sort of, I think, what you're going to see out there. Like, it's going to happen. It's more of a staging and time and resources question. I guess uh, closing remarks the next year. Um, It could be a tough one, but... I think there's a lot of hopeful movement in the GTX space. So Andy, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah. So even from, if you look at this from an international perspective, there's movement across the board from, you know, um, HTA bodies in Europe um, in, in Asia, we see the government involved in seeing how to cover these types of products. It is, you know, we're, we're like right there. Um, I think over the next year, we're going to see a, a wider variety of business models come to light. And I think that's only a positive because these products are going to fit into patients' lives and help a lot of people. It's just a question of the best way to get it in their hands um, based on the therapeutic category. So I'm, I'm really excited for next year. Yeah, I, I'd second that motion um, and take it one step further, you added a comment early on that said that I think investors are sour on it. And I think investors are taking a, or have taken a smart pause, but they will see the results that Andy just talked about. And there's a lot of dry powder on the sideline and you will start to see um, companies that I think like Owens that are being smart about both clinical research and about market access and finding models that are catching on, you you will see them get funded. I, I think it's going to be a good year. Sorry for the background noise. That's fine. Yeah, I think related. Um, a number of companies are just commercial or been commercial in the last like six months that I I think, you know, think like applied VR that I'm really bullish on. Yep. Um, then uh, proving proving the unit economics and getting the point where they can scale uh, commercially, and and so from there, I think that's going to unlock that capital that Joel's talking about. That's going to drive uh, M and A activity, right? Like you know, you're going to see major players say, "Oh, interesting, I can really scale this and try to pick up some stuff from there." And then you, I also think, <clears throat> like every industry you're going to see some consolidation in the next year because some of those others are going to not, are going to run out of capital and going to get picked up by the ones that are, are figured it out or have, are figuring it out. So, so I think those are what you're going to see in the next 12 months. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time.